0: welcome back to the building stewards podcast i'm your host donovan brooks and i'm here to guide you on your stewardship journey through education encouragement and engagement i am glad to be back with you i know it's been a while since i have recorded an episode and pushed some content out there i have been sick i've been busy i've had client meetings and the business has just been taking up some time so i'm super glad to be with you and to push this episode out. So in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, I thought it would be fun and helpful to make an episode for all you teachers out there. You are appreciated, you're underpaid, you are again underappreciated at the same time, but you are valued and I wanted to create something that would benefit you. So I wanted to create this episode for all you teachers and just generally speaking, this will be for mostly public school teachers. I know there's a lot of private school teachers out there and there's a lot of intricacies and nuances with teachers in the private sector, if you will. But this is going to be mainly directed for those public uh, teachers. And there might be even some overlap with some uh, public employees or if you work as an employee at a school district, but you aren't a teacher. So there is some overlap. So if you wanted to stay uh, tuned for that, uh, feel free. So Anyway, again, some of the examples I'm going to be giving are going to be super general in nature to be able to be applied no matter where you're teaching. And uh, I'll be using kind of Missouri as an example state because, one, I know about the the, the school system in general um, and kind of what is enforced in- in for the state. But also I do have some teachers that um, and friends and, and clients that you know, work for the state of Missouri and um, are involved in that manner. So, anyway, that's what I'll be doing. But again, uh, I'll try to keep it general enough to for you to apply to your personal circumstances. So, anyway, let's dive in. A lot of these topics uh, were things that I came up with that I wanted to address, but some of them are questions that I heard back from people on social media. So, it's going to be kind of a blended episode. So, first of all, wanted to. To jump in and address cash flow. This was a, a topic I really hadn't ever thought of, but I had a, a friend on social media that wanted to hear my thoughts about cash flow. So unbeknownst to me, every school district has different pay periods. Um, I, I see a lot of monthly pay periods, but I heard that there were bi-weekly, even semi-monthly versions of, of pay periods. And even some school districts that will get paid three times at the beginning of summer to cover the entire summer, which is very strange to me that they would pay everyone up front at the the beginning of summer to last them through the summer. And so that was really strange. So my friend said that he gets paid three times in June for June, July, and August. And so yeah, if you don't have a plan for what that looks like, it can be hard to navigate. So anyway, cash flow, I recommend using a tool called YNAB. It's short for you need a budget. And what I love about it is one, uh, there is a learning curve. But one, once you get through that learning curve, it's super easy to use. And it just makes sense because it forces you to budget the income that you have and receive. And so as that income comes in through your bank account and flows into the tool YNAB, it's going to say, hey, you need to give every dollar a job and make sure that you're on top of it. Make sure this is planned for accordingly. And so for people that get paid in advance like that, this could be a great tool to fully fund some of those necessary expenses uh, at the beginning of summer that you know you'll need to pay throughout summer, like mortgage or utilities or insurance or what have you. Another thing I will hit on about cash flow is, and just getting paid is oftentimes, when it comes to getting paid, you get paid after the fact, right? You get paid after your, your service that you've completed, which is pretty normal for all of us that work jobs. Very rarely do you get paid up front unless you're self-employed uh, or a contractor. So since we are getting paid after the fact, you should be working to a place that your paycheck is paying for future expenses. So if you're playing catch up, if your paycheck at the end of the month is to cover your expenses, from that month, you're doing it wrong, you're, you're you're backwards, you're trying to play catch up constantly. And I can't imagine the anxiety and stress that this causes. So if you get paid at the end of May, that paycheck at the end of May should be used to budget for June's expenses. And so this is another thing that YNAB can lean into. And it's kind of one of their kind of main principles is getting you to a place of being ahead. And the burden that I've heard from clients, the burden that this lifts is crazy. And the stress and anxiety that it removes knowing that your paycheck is for the next month for the next month's expenses is a huge benefit. And so that's one thing I would say here is if you're playing catch up, whether it be, you know, because you get paid twice a month or because you get paid at the end of the month, um, work towards living beneath your means enough to where you can get ahead and use those paychecks for the future expenses. But when it comes down to it, the goal here is to have a plan. Have a plan, have a plan, have a plan. You need to have a plan. If you are getting, again, paid simultaneously for an entire month's worth of of work, you do a year's worth of work in nine months. And so if you're getting paid for those three months up front, you need to have a plan heading into summer. So it's just not sitting in your bank account, you can use a tool, you can move it to savings, and get it out of your checking account, whatever way is going to work. I'm biased, obviously, towards Wineab. I don't get paid <laughs> for advertising Wineab. I know I say that a lot. And I, I reference it a lot in my podcast, but no, no affiliate compensation for that. I just have seen the power of it work with my clients, with me personally and professionally. And I'll put a link in the show notes if anyone wants to check that out. But again, have a plan for that income. Your income, your cash flow is the foundation of the rest of your personal finances. So this is why I stress on it so much. It's why I harp on it. It's probably why people get annoyed, you know, when I talk about it so much, but you can't expect to thrive and succeed in any other area of your personal finances if you don't have your cash flow under control and if you haven't mastered it. So anyway, that's the main goal. Have a plan and work that plan. Okay, the next topic, which a lot of people chimed in um, and are curious about, and it's kind of a (laughs) a veiled component of all you public school teachers, but it's the teacher's retirement and how that works. And so a lot of questions around this, it can get pretty complicated pretty quick. And every school district, every state is different. So my recommendation here, my advice here is to spend some time to get to know your appropriate retirement system that has been built for teachers. And just go to go to the website, go to the website and spend some time looking in the members section of what you need to know how benefits are calculated, what factors are used. The, the guidelines, the rules, the ins and outs and become well versed in it. And if you aren't going to do that, then you need to be working with someone or have someone in your corner that's going to be doing that for you, that can kind of percolate everything down and to bring you in on what you need to know. So super important. There's a lot of moving parts. And this is something that you don't want to leave up to chance or you don't want to be in the dark about. So here in Missouri, there are two pension systems for public school employees. So the first one is for teachers. It's PSRS. It's the public school retirement system of Missouri. So that is for teachers, the public teachers in the system. The other pension is for public education employees, and that's the public education employees retirement system, also known as peers. And so this is every other public education employee that isn't a teacher So think of, you know, principals, secretaries, cafeteria staff, transportation service. Think of those types of employees. So your state, your system probably has something pretty similar. But here in Missouri, those are the two systems. Teachers retirement systems are like pensions. They're like annuities. They're what we call defined benefit. So you'll contribute to this whenever you're working. You'll contribute money to it. Your employer, your school district will contribute money to it. And the benefit that you receive in retirement is defined. You know what you're gonna get. It's laid out um, whenever it's time to start receiving those benefits. And so that's why we call it defined benefit. As opposed to other um, workers, maybe in different private companies, we participate in what's called defined contribution. So you'll still contribute maybe out of your paycheck, but what an employer contributes is defined as well and so whenever you come to taking money out of that plan it's it's defined based on what you're able to contribute and what um, it's grown to so it is not a guaranteed stream of income like what you teachers will receive in your retirement and just to just to hit on how how this gets funded i hit on a little bit your your retirement plan is funded with contributions interest and growth with how it's invested and what the employer contributes and anything else not funded by those things is covered by outside funding, which is typically debt. So one one important thing to, to realize and understand is how funded your pension plan is through your state or system. And I say state or system because sometimes bigger metropolitan areas have their own pension system that doesn't necessarily participate in the same system that is run by the state. So that's if I if you hear me toggling back and forth, um, it's because I've seen that and that does exist. So but kind of a, a little side note is, it's always good to know how funded your specific pension fund is and not funded by you funded in general, which means how much is that pension fund pre-funded by contributions? It kind of is a, a metric that kind of shows the health of the pension fund. A higher pre-funded amount means it's in good health. It has enough money. It has a higher likelihood to continue to pay out benefits to current retirees and future retirees. The lower funding percentage ratio means it's more at risk. There's a lesser likelihood that it'll be able to, to pay out those benefits. So here in Missouri, my checked the funding amount for the PSRS fund is 84%. So that's, you know, pretty, I, nothing nothing to be worried about necessarily in that in that range. So 84% of that fund is pre-funded through uh, retirement contributions and um, interest. So any amount that's not pre-funded has to be funded with outside funding, which is normally debt. Or retirement benefits have to be reduced. And so we see that as a dangerous and precarious component of these pension funds. So I won't get into it too much, but I don't know if you remember the the Michigan or the Detroit pension fund bankruptcy that happened and a lot of the teachers were affected up there and a lot of public workers. This is what happens when you don't get the pension fund prefunded enough and you rely too much on debt. And so also right now, Chicago is going through a pension crisis, and they have a lot of issues going on at that level. Uh, One thing to note, too, is that normally in the private sector, when a pension fund defaults or can't pay out the benefits, insurance steps in. Typically, they have to pay uh, an organization called the Pension Guarantee Benefit Corporation. I may have transposed some of those letters, but they pay insurance to be able to ensure that benefits can be paid out to retirees and the rightful owners of those benefits. In the public sector, that doesn't exist. And so taxpayers foot the bill in that manner. And so that's another thing to kind of consider. I know I've kind of belabored the point, but knowing the funding amount of your appropriate system and state is important to know and even if you're looking at being mobile and teaching and and bouncing around to maybe different school districts depending on where they are that's something to know beforehand before maybe stepping into that situation you know you need to know if you're going to an area that has a low funding rate because there's a chance that that could default, or there could be a chance that you don't get your full retirement benefits under that program. So enough about that. That's something I wanted to hit on, but back to just how the retirement system works. That's how it's funded. Here in Missouri, teachers put in 14 and half percent of their paycheck to their retirement, and it is matched by the employer with that same amount. Now, it is important to note if you are currently contributing to social security or if you're not so there's 12 states that do not have public employees participating in social security those states are Alaska, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Louisiana, Maine, Massachusetts, Missouri, Nevada, Ohio and Texas and another 3 states that have varying degrees of participation those states are Georgia, Kentucky and Rhode Island so it's important to know if you're contributing to social security or not uh, and this will come in handy when doing some planning and retirement planning. And so start planning if you're one of those states, or you can look at your pay stub and see if Social Security's being withheld or not. So Missouri, for example, teachers aren't paying Social Security. And that's important to know because come retirement, you're not going to have a Social Security benefit if you don't have any other covered employment through Social Security. So states can only do this if the benefits that they're going to pay out to retirees is going to be Kind of match or better than the Social Security benefit that they could receive. So, what this comes back to is that the employer is, again, ponying up and contributing enough to ensure that the benefit that teachers re- receive in retirement is going to be what they could receive via Social Security, be at or above uh, what that retirement benefit would look like. And so, a perspective to have is in some of these states, in one of those 13 states, you may not be contributing in Social Security but it's kind of built in per se. So in Missouri, you contribute 14.5%. You're not contributing to social security, but it's kind of shifted from contributing to social security to contributing to your pension plan. So of that 14.5%, you can kind of have the perspective that 6.2% is what you would have been contributing to social security, but now it's just going to your teacher's retirement. And then you can net that out and just see you're probably closer to 8% of your own savings. So that could come in handy when you're looking at and evaluating how much do I need to be saving additionally to kind of fund my retirement goals. And then also side note, as I was doing some research, there's some intricacies with social security. If you are eligible, you go through, you're eligible for teacher's retirement, you didn't pay in, but also Maybe at some point in in your life, you've actually accumulated enough work to qualify for Social Security benefits. And so this is what I had down. For those that have enough quarters to qualify for Social Security but are also a public service employee, the windfall elimination provision can be disruptive in calculation or receiving Social Security benefits, even when eligible. So just because some of the nuances they use when calculating those Social Security benefits um, incorporate a lot of these provisions. So in, in this case, the windfall elimination provision, because of the nature of the income that you're receiving, it's going to impact maybe some of those calculations or payments of those benefits. So if that's the case, if you're in that you know scenario, or you're going to be moving in that scenario, make sure you get the right professionals in your corner to make sure that you're you get everything that you're due and if this applies to you i'll plug some resources in the show notes that you can do a little more reading to determine how this impacts you okay so back to the teacher's retirement plan so when it comes down to your benefit and actual calculation of it one i always recommend check your annual statements that you get every year make sure you're getting these statements saved make sure you're saving these copies every year's it's, it's great to reflect back on. It's great to confirm that the accurate information is being relayed to the state. It's, it's great to just be able to see some of those projections of what your benefits can be come retirement. So make sure you're saving all those statements, whether it's the paper statements or logging in each year and, and saving those. So when it comes down to the calculation of your actual benefit, they're taking into consideration three factors when calculating that retirement benefit. One is called the final average salary. The next is your years of service. And the third is the benefit factor or sometimes called statutory multiplier. This will be a percentage. And so those are the three main factors when calculating your monthly benefit for your retirement. So the final average salary is is some sort of average of your salary, so different states and different systems calculate this a little differently, but what they're trying to come to is the same kind of component, and this is this final average salary. So Missouri, what they do is they take your three highest consecutive salaries. So you, if you go down in your service, um, you go to your earning history on your statement or your portal, and you find your three highest consecutive salaries. You take those, you add it together, add those three salaries together, and divide it by 36. And this is going to get a monthly final average salary. That amount multiplied times your years of service, multiplied times the benefit factor, is going to get your approximate uh, monthly benefit in retirement. Now, this is where the calculators, the benefit calculators come in handy. Because if you are still a ways away from retirement, it it has some built-in features to help calculate what a potential benefit will look like come that retirement time for you. So again, using your salaries from today may not give you the best accurate view, but I know they have a couple options. At least in Missouri, they give you a couple options of uh, helping you project out what that might look like. Again, every state calculates this a little different. Every state might have a different benefit factor or statutory multiplier. I know our neighboring state, Kansas, uses a different amount for that multiplier. And they calculate the final average salary a little different. So, but that's the main kind of formula, if you will. Again, do your own due diligence and going in and doing your own research on on how this is calculated for you. But that's kind of the main framework that we're seeing with, you know, these pension type defined benefit plans. Okay, I'll have a little bit more about benefits and, and payout options here in a little bit, but I want to head into vesting and what this means. So vesting means you're eligible to receive retirement benefits from your state or system. And so you need to know your vesting schedule. Typically it's five years, but again, this may vary depending on state or system. Here in Missouri, it's five years. So you need to work at least five years and have five years of covered service through your membership to be eligible to receive those retirement benefits through Missouri. What happens if you don't vest? So let's say you graduate college and you start you know, working as a teacher, and you get maybe three years of service completed, and you decide, hey, I need a break, or, hey, I want to change careers. So at that time, you aren't vested, you can either roll over your contributions and interest, and then kind of side note disclosure that if you choose this option, anytime you withdraw funds or apply for a refund through your state or system, it's not going to include typically, again, this is Missouri, it typically won't include the employer's contributions with that. So it's just yours. So that's a big that's a big thing you need to to worry about if this is ever an option that you consider. What's the cost? What's the cost of rolling these funds over and withdrawing from your you know membership? Is it worth losing kind of what the employer's contributed on your behalf to your retirement? So anyway, so you can roll over your contributions and interest to like an outside account, like an IRA or if you say, hey, I think there's a good chance that I'll return to teaching, you know, in this state under the same membership, I might just leave it leave it put and kind of see what happens. And so there is kind of a grace period, um, at least here in Missouri, there's kind of a grace period for you to potentially return to teaching under that same membership. And I believe it's also five years. So, you know, you get three years under your belt, you say, hey, I need a break from teaching or I'm going to go see what else is out there. I'm going to leave my retirement through my system, you know, I'm going to leave it put um, and see what happens. So then you would have five years to resume teaching and be back under that membership before they kind of force you to to take that money um, and withdraw it anyway. So those are kind of some of those options of what you can do. If you're vested, if you're fully vested in your teacher's retirement, then you can get refunded your contributions and interest and withdrawal. You can also just leave it put and you know wait till you qualify for retirement benefits under your state or your your systems plan you know that's really kind of your two options when it comes to being more vested and and having a longer work history you really need to consider what the best option is rolling over your your contributions and your interest you know will give you a, a lump sum that you can actually invest in the stock market and kind of have a little more control over but you you need to weigh the cost of losing the employer's contributions and what that can mean for kind of that retirement income and the other the other part of it is you can leave a put and wait until you're eligible to start receiving those retirement benefits and I'll, I'll talk about that here in a little bit as well so and then just one thing to note too is i know it's pretty typical for my generation and younger generations to hop around to be pretty mobile when it comes to work and just one thing to note as a public school teacher that may be considering moving or jumping around. You are severely disadvantaged when it comes to your retirement, and this is a shame. This is a shame that they haven't created more—I don't know if you want to call it synchronicity—within this area for public teachers, but there isn't. And so, if you decide, if you decide, you know, you've worked, you know, seven years at a, you know, school district under a state and you decide, you know, you you and your family you're moving to another state. Yeah, you can leave your funds there. You can you can definitely leave your funds there. You're vested until you're eligible to receive retirement benefits, but you lose on some of the compounding that comes into the calculation of your your ben, your benefit come retirement and you kind of start all over at your new state. And so that's something that kind of gets lost when being in this system and it, it's it's unfortunate. And even if you decide to take your money with you and, and roll it over and either invest it into, you know, an IRA, deposit it into an IRA, and invest it into funds, you're still losing that employer portion of kind of what you're eligible for to be receiving under that membership, but that gets left behind because you either not vested or you were refunded your your money. And so that's unfortunate and that's that's a little frustrating. But one thing I didn't talk about too. But you can also a lot of a lot of these programs, a lot of these pension funds and systems allow you to buy service into the, you know, whatever pension, whatever system you're a part of. And so that could be an option as well is, is buying into to service to get years of service that, again, affect your ability to retire earlier or your benefit as well. So that's an option that I didn't really dig into, but is available for those that want to buy service. Okay, so retirement options, when it comes to actually utilizing your benefits, and when you're eligible, many states and many systems have kind of a a rule around a number. And so here in Missouri, it's called the rule of 80. So whenever your age plus your years of service equals 80, you're eligible for kind of normal retirement, and you can start receiving your benefits. And so you can kind of do the math. Again, that's age and years of service. A lot of states and a lot of systems I've seen use something very similar to that. And so that's something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. And it applies, you know, to everyone. So if you get started teaching later in your life, you know, maybe a a career changer, this is still something that applies to you, rule of 80. So that is, um, yeah, something to be mindful of. And this is why you see a lot of teachers that are able to retire kind of earlier than, maybe their counterparts that work in a different industry or profession. It's because if they started teaching right out of college, you know, it doesn't take but maybe 30 years to get to a point where they're eligible for retirement. I have a client that is able to retire next year you know, and she'll be 51. But she's 51. And she'll have, you know, 29 years of service. And so that gets her to 80. And it's now an option. She loves teaching. She's not sure if she wants to retire this early. But it's she said it was empowering knowing that that's an option. And it's an option if she just doesn't want to do it anymore. It's an option if the school district starts making changes she doesn't believe in. It's an option. And that's that's what's cool about this option. So I do want to address something that has been floating around. And it was actually brought to my attention by this same client. Just some misinformation around being retirement eligible through your your retirement system. So some misinformation that I heard was it no it no longer makes sense to continue teaching once you're eligible for retirement. And so the misinformation was is that your benefit didn't increase once you hit that retirement age when you're eligible. And that's just not the case. And so if you go, if you remember back to the formula, talking about your your final average salary, your years of service, and the multiplier, like you can see how years of service as that number goes up, it, it changes the final output. As your final average salary goes up, that changes the output. And so yeah, I just wanted to address that it still makes it it can make sense to continue to work and increase that benefit. If you love what you're doing, and you Don't envision quitting any sooner. Just know that your benefits going to increase over time because you're logging more service. You're logging more service years and your salary is typically going to be increasing, which means that final average salary component is going to go up as well. And then even on the back end, um, again, I said that a lot of these projections are based on tables and actuarial statistics. So the longer that you work, they're actually compressing the Benefits that you're due to receive. And so, again, that is going to put some upward pressure on the amount that you're due to receive in a shorter amount of time. Anyway, talking more about retirement options, when it comes to actually receiving retirement benefits, there are a handful of options for teachers. So, you can take the single life option. And so, this is really just your monthly payment paid for life. And so, when you see that kind of first benefit, this is kind of what's highlighted the most it's actually what that equation above I was talking about that final average salary times years of service times that benefit factor. That's what's getting you your your single life amount. And so know what your single life amount is, this is kind of the basis for all discussion and planning when it comes to kind of retirement and your benefits. So there's the single life benefit that's going to pay you your a monthly benefit for life, no matter how long you live. And this is kind of one of the beautiful things about pensions and annuities is that a single life annuity should pay this amount, whatever the amount is for the duration of your life. So it's it's both good and can be bad depending on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at just providing yourself income, you know, for life, it's a great option to ensure that you don't outlive your income. Now, again, there is some cons of rising costs and inflation. Typically, they build in some, some cost of living adjustments but uh, a good a good solid stream of income that can protect the longevity of life so the the con of this is um, whenever you die the income stops and so say you only draw on your retirement benefits for five years after you die that's it that's that's the amount of benefit that is paid to you um, it's just that amount let's say you live for 50 years it's going to continue to pay you a monthly benefit for 50 years so again good or bad depending on on how you're viewing it and what your needs are. Another option is a joint survivor option. And so this is um, a combination of the single life, but then it also has a built-in feature to pay a joint survivor a specific amount. So let's say you're married and you want your spouse to receive the income should you predecease them. And so, how this would work is it would pay you your benefit based on the percentage, which I'll get here in a moment. It'll pay you a benefit. And then, if you predecease your spouse, it will then shift and start paying your spouse a benefit. So, to make sure that income covers kind of both of your lives in, in some extent. So, there's different options within this joint survivor option. Typically, I think in Missouri, there's 100%, 75%, and 50%. And so what this means is whatever the benefit that's been calculated, and a lot of these are so they're, they're moving so much, um, these numbers. So you really need to go to your specific state's website or your system's website and do your own projections. Most of them have benefit calculators that you can play around and kind of see what this looks like. And that's what I would encourage you. Um, I I play around oftentimes with Missouri's benefit calculator and, and doing projections, but When in doubt, and and if you want to see some actual examples, you need to head to your state or system's website and jump on the calculator and plug in your own numbers. So anyway, back to joint survivor. These are all based on kind of actuarial tables based on life expectancies and everything they have it down to a science. Um, but whatever, you know, whatever you're paid, um, whenever you die, you can either select to have your joint survivor to receive 100% of what you were receiving, 75% of what you were receiving or 50% of what you're receiving. So, depending on that percentage amount will affect what you're receiving today. You know, it sounds, you know, like a lot, but So once you see all your options on paper in front of you, you can actually visually see the amounts, then you'll have a little more insight into how to properly plan those payment options. If your spouse, for example, or some other dependent, for example, has another stream of income, maybe you don't need as much to go to them. So you select 50%. That would mean your payment today would be higher. But if you say, hey, I want them to have 100% of what I'm receiving, you're going to receive a lower amount today to compensate for them receiving 100% for the duration of their life. So anyway, I hope that makes sense. I know it's a lot. But that's kind of how that works. And again, reference your own system and programs, options and retirement breakdown of that. Okay, and another option is the partial lump sum option it is exactly what it sounds like. If you select this option, and there's typically a couple different options under the the partial lump sum, it's like maybe one, two or three years, I, I can't remember, there's, there's different options, you'll have to reference your own program. But what they'll do is they'll issue you a partial lump sum that you can actually roll over to an outside account. And then you have full control over it, and you can invest it on your own, you can withdraw from it, you know, as you please. And so typically, whenever you start drawing your benefits, it's locked in and what you lock it in at and what you choose, like that's it. Like it's there's there's no flexibility outside of that. You can't take any more money out of it. It is kind of set it and forget it. With the partial lump sum option, this allows you a little more flexibility and having more control over some of your funds. So they'll give you that lump sum. You can again, put it in an outside account, invest it, you can um, withdraw a little, you know, you can have, you have freedom of withdrawing the funds when and how you please um, and how it's invested. Uh, but then you also still receive, um, you know, a, a single life. Um, amount and so it's not one or the other. It's it's both with this partial lump sum option. They're not going to let you take all of the money out of the pension fund of your teacher's retirement. They're only going to give you a partial lump sum, and they're going to say, okay, based on what you chose, um, which option of the partial lump sum, you're going to get um, your single life um, amount is going to be adjusted according to that. And again, they have tables, and it's all you know done um, actuarially and down down to a science. And so. So there are a handful of reasons why this could be a suitable option for someone um, or a couple. And the first one is they want to leave an inheritance maybe to their beneficiaries, their children or or what have you. They want to be able to pass on some assets to those that they care about. The next is maybe they don't depend on this income stream to outlive them. So this would be if they had multiple other income streams, like maybe the spouse has Social Security, maybe the spouse has their own defined benefit plan or a 401k or some sort of other retirement savings. And so one of the prime benefits of teacher retirement and kind of these annuity and defined benefit plans is they will pay the benefit for life. And so with the partial lump sum option, you're reducing, you're taking a lump sum, but you're reducing the amount that you're going to receive in the monthly benefit. And so that could be another reason is they don't depend on this income stream to outlive them. And the third reason is they foresee more variable expenses in retirement. And so if you take the single life option, you're getting that stream solely. So in retirement, you're more fixated to that stream and living within that limit of income. But what happens if you need to take out lump sums in retirement to pay for this or that? You're out of luck with a with one stream of income with one single life benefit. But if you have a lump sum option, you take it out and you invest it, you have flexibility to withdraw from that IRA. Um, I use out I said outside account a lot of um, referencing, hey, you can roll over a partial lump sum to an outside account. When I say that, I'm referencing a traditional IRA. But with that you have the flexibility of withdrawing from that traditional IRA to pay for those variable expenses that may pop up in retirement in which you would need to cover. I guess I just thought of this. Another good reason to choose this option is if you're not very confident in your state or your system's retirement and funding projection. So again, you heard me talk about the funding health of a pension or retirement system earlier. So if you're in maybe a state or an area that has had trouble historically, and it just doesn't look good long term, if you're able to take money out of it, it may be a good way to protect yourself a little bit and take some of your eggs out of that basket and allow yourself to at least have a portion of that that can't be lost or can't be reduced and that you can invest on your own and and have a little protection in that same vein. So anyway, that is a little bit about the partial lump sum option. The last option is um, what's called term certain. And you don't see a lot about this option It's probably the least popular out of all of them but term certain is exactly what it sounds like. They will pay out the entirety of what you're eligible for over a certain term. And so if you select 10 years, they'll pay out everything that you're due over 10 years. And so the benefit of this is you can be you can be certain that you're gonna receive everything that you're eligible for over that term. And so you have a beneficiary on file. And even if you die in five years, you know, it'll continue to pay out for that next five years, and so unlike the single life option, it can continue to return the money that um, and pay the money of, of your retirement. You know, past your death, I mean, it could be a great way just to accelerate how much money you get out of the plan at a quicker pace. And so again, there's more tax implications of taking more money out sooner in a smaller period of time. You you know, risk being pushed into upper tax brackets. But again, this is a very personal decision and maybe it works for whoever's, you know, considering it. Um, But again, you got to kind of plan strategically of why this is being chosen and kind of what the protocol is going to be and and the planning possibilities around this. But again, term certain in general means that the benefit of what you're eligible for is going to be paid out within a certain term. Okay. So that was a lot generally about retirement systems of public school teachers. I know it was a lot and hopefully there was some nuggets in there that you were able to understand and benefit from. But again, let me know if there's anything you want to hear more about or any clarifications around some of those you know, teachers' retirement systems and programs. Okay. Next, I wanted to talk a little bit about student loans. So have a plan for student loans. And for public school teachers, A big question that you should be asking yourself is, yeah, what's your plan for student loans? But if you have them and then if you are going to try to obtain public service loan forgiveness and so public service loan forgiveness is a program that was created by Congress that would forgive loans for public service employees if they met certain criteria. First, you need to be employed by a U.S. federal, state, local, or tribal government, or you need to be employed by a not-for-profit organization. So if you don't meet any of those criteria, then you are out. You can't qualify for public service loan forgiveness. If you're a teacher in the private sector, then unfortunately you can't qualify unless you transition to becoming a public school teacher. And so most public schools are government entities and uh, are funded by taxpayers on taxpayer money. So that would qualify. Again, do your own research. Don't take my word for it. You need to know specifically if your school district, your employer qualifies as a 501c3 or a government agency that would qualify under this public service loan forgiveness. One thing that's been discouraging is seeing how few Applicants are being approved for public service loan forgiveness, so for one reason or another, they're missing on the criteria, and so if you're pursuing this, you need to know for certain, you need to make sure that you're doing everything right. The The worst thing that could happen is you get through 10 years of service, and then you go to apply, and you get denied because you know you missed part of the criteria and all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder and you've just changed your timeline and everything's changed within your personal finances so if this is a route you're going you need to know for certain that you're going on the right path for this another piece of criteria is you need to be working full time so if you're working part time or you're a long-term sub unfortunately this will not count another piece of criteria is that the loans that are being forgiven they need to be direct loans they need to be from the direct, the direct loan program. And so, again, this comes down to just knowing exactly what types of loans that you have. Have a tight rein on, on, on knowing this. And so log into your accounts and look at all your loans and know which loans um, and what types of loans that you have. So direct loans are the only ones that qualify for this program. And there's no other way to put it. Private loans don't count. There's some FFEL loans that are older in nature that don't count. And so just know that direct loans are the only thing that qualify. You can do some consolidation. There are ways to consolidate loans into a direct consolidated loan, but you need at least one direct loan in order to consolidate your other loans into a direct consolidated loan, and you need more than one loan to consolidate a loan, So, which speaks for itself, but that's just the rules. Just wanted to make sure. The next requirement is that you need to be repaying your student loans based on an income driven repayment plan, and the reason being is if you repay your student loans based on a standard or anything other than income driven repayment plan, then it's just not going to work in your favor, you're going to end up not either not having anything to repay because you've already paid it off. So there's nothing to be forgiven, or you're going to end up repaying way more than you actually need to, which is just going to cost you money instead of having that money forgiven, which transitions us into repayment options. And so then again, this is very This is a very personal question based on your circumstances. So you need to know your circumstances of what makes the most sense. So for most people, when it comes to income-driven repayment plans, either the pay repayment plan or the repay payment plan are going to make the most sense. In these monthly payment amounts for both the repay and the pay plans are going to be based on your discretionary income. And it's going to be capped at 10% of your discretionary income. Now I'll put some more resources in the show notes about how discretionary income is calculated for this purpose. But just know it involves the federal poverty guidelines and your adjusted gross income. So again, I'll put some information in there in the show notes about um, kind of the formula that's used to calculate this. But again, these plans are going to cap your payment at a maximum of 10% of your discretionary income. If you are a single filing status for tax purposes, or if you're married and file your taxes jointly and your spouse's income is pretty similar to yours, then repay is likely going to be your best option. If you are married and your spouse makes significantly more income than you do, maybe they're in the private sector, then the pay option is going to be best coupled with filing your taxes as married filing separately. And the reason because is when you file your taxes as married filing separately and you elect the pay option, your spouse's income is not included in the payment calculation. This means you will have lower payments because they are just basing your repayment amount based on your income and thus you will have more forgiven. Do your own research, do your own due diligence, or work with a qualified professional that can help guide you through this process. But know exactly how your income and how your situation, even if you're married, how your spouse's income, because that comes into calculation, how that's gonna affect your payment amount, because the the least amount you can pay means the more that's gonna be forgiven long term. Okay, one last piece of criteria for Uh, public service loan forgiveness is that you need 120 qualifying payments and so a qualifying payment is a monthly payment that fulfills one of those 120 payments so the 120 payments equates to 10 years so one monthly payment times 12 is 12 payments a year times 10 120 so again any extra payments per month won't expedite the process only one payment each month is going to be counted for one of those 120 qualifying payments. Also, any months during the present and previous administrative forbearance count towards those 120 qualifying payments. So hopefully, if you are pursuing public service loan forgiveness and your loans are in forbearance, hopefully you've been accumulating those months as, as qualifying payments. So Again, do your due diligence, check with your servicer to make sure that everything's being tracked and recorded accordingly, um, because you definitely wanna get that service um, counted. So uh, a lot of people are getting you know, a year, uh, even more than a year of qualifying payments towards their public service loan forgiveness through this forbearance. So again, in order to qualify, you need 120 qualifying payments. One side note is they don't have to be consecutive. And I say that again, they don't have to be consecutive. So if you do five years, if you do five years teaching and you've accumulated 60 qualifying payments, you decide to take a break a year or two. uh, Maybe you have a child, you take a couple years off, you resume service, you kind of pick back up and you can start accumulating those qualifying payments again. So they don't need to be consecutive, but you do need 100 qualifying payments, one per month. And it has to be at a qualifying employer, like I previously mentioned. And one side note about forgiveness amounts is that generally before this year, any federal student loans that were forgiven were treated as taxable income. And so there was some sort of tax implication with that. With the new American Rescue Plan, the administration has said, hey, any federal loans that will be forgiven or have been forgiven from now until 2023 are not taxable. And so that's encouraging. That's um, maybe some foreshadowing of what's to come. But just know that temporarily, until anything changes between now and 2023, that any loans that are forgiven are not taxable. So I would just say, keep an eye on what continues to unfold with public for federal loans and what the administration and Congress is trying to do for student loan borrowers. Again, unfortunately, if you have private student loans, there's not a lot of relief and aid being targeted. I do wanna take a minute and speak to those that are teaching in uh, the private sector or just at private schools in general. Um, So you don't have the same options that are afforded to you uh, because you are teaching at a private school. So you have a couple options. If you ever think that you might end up in the in the public school system, then it may pay off to hold on to your direct loans, continue to pay those, maybe use some of those advantageous income-driven repayment plans, and see if you ever make your way to the public system. If you are dead set on staying in the private sector, uh, teaching at a private school, then it probably will make sense to look at potentially refinancing those loans in order to get a better interest rate so so you can pay those loans off quicker. And then one other thing is, like I said, there is a current administrative forbearance for student loans. It is through the end of September. So keep an eye on that if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness these months still count towards your qualifying payments. If you're not, then it is just a reprieve that you can kind of use to help get back on your feet. Or if you're steady and you're able to, you can make payments that are going entirely towards principal. So again, this is kind of up to your personal strategy and your approach and kind of what your goals are. But again, end of September is when this uh, forbearance is good through. I honestly think there's a good chance of it being extended. Now, don't take my word for it, but just kind of what we're seeing about Congress and the administration trying to help student loan borrowers, I wouldn't be surprised if this got extended. And then one last thing about forgiveness and cancellation is just know, know all the options that are available to you. Oftentimes there's some other you know, forgiveness and cancellation benefits and features uh, depending on where you teach maybe what state you're in even at a federal level there's some teacher specific cancellation which is a little different in how they go about it but just know all the options available to you if you haven't started to do your due diligence on this know what's available for you and take advantage of what is available for you Oh, one more thing about just um, student loans and income-driven repayment plans and public service loan forgiveness is you need to be certifying your employment every year if you're working towards those 120 qualifying payments. That's just the best practice. Make sure the numbers are clean and make sure you know exactly the details and where you stand on public service loan forgiveness. So be sure to certify your employment every year. If you want to do that at the end of the contract year, great. If you want to do that at the end of the fiscal year, great. Just set a reminder and make sure you're certifying your employment every year. I'll try to put that form in the show notes. And then if you're on an income driven repayment plan, don't forget to certify your income every year as well. Whenever your servicer request that of you. You need to do this because if not, you risk them changing your repayment plan because they all of a sudden don't have your income to base your income driven repayment plan off of. And so make sure you're doing this and you're in the know and know when they're doing this each year so that you can be quick to respond and report this information. A lot of these servicers now have it all online through the portal. So if you just log in, you should be able to access this place to where you can report your own income. They may request tax return, you know, they may or may not. So um, also oftentimes they have the form in here for certifying um, employment as well. But I'll, I'll plug that just in case. Okay, next question is: can your classroom expenses be deductible? So short answer is yes. There is a line on your tax return that says educator expenses, and this will flow through to the adjustments to your income on line 8A. And so that is kind of what that looks like. The caveat is only up to $250 can be deductible, which is menial for most of you teachers that actually spend quite a bit of money um, building out your classrooms with material um, and all the resources that it takes to run a classroom above what you are given through your district. So unfortunately, that is the limit there. I will say There could be a potential workaround for you, for you teachers that do other sorts of activities. If you have a side business, if you do any tutoring, if you have any other type of service that you do outside of teaching that maybe use some similar and same supplies, that could be a great way where you expense that to your side business or your other service that you do, and then you can actually just give those supplies to your classroom after you're done using it so this isn't you know a a loophole to say hey i'm just gonna buy it and expense it maybe to my other business that is teaching related and then just directly use it in my classroom that's you know fraud you can't do that but if you have a side business like tutoring or some other education type service that you use similar supplies or same supplies, you could definitely buy it, use it and expense it for that side business. And then after you're done using it, you could then give it to your classroom. And that could be a workaround that I've seen work in other industries and professions when it comes to that type of, you know, deduction. So anyway, that is that. But short list for most people, two hundred fifty dollars limit on what they can deduct. And so if there's no other, you know, way you can deduct some of your expenses. That's kind of what you're left at, unfortunately. All right. Some other things I wanted to hit on is um, health insurance. So everything that I've seen with working with teachers is that your health plans, your health insurance, your health plans are, are pretty mediocre. The cost for it is typically free or very cheap. It's kind of provided you know, for you from the school district, which is nice. They bear most of the costs there. But in regards to, you know, the deductibles, out-of-pocket max, maybe some of the coverages, you know, underneath that plan, it's pretty mediocre. And so all this to say is that if there's a cheaper, better option available to consider checking with that. I know uh, one thing that I kind of had on my mind just as I work with teachers and even just building out this piece of the podcast is checking with your school district to see if you can forego and opt out of health insurance in lieu of a pay raise in proportion to the same cost. So again, not every school district, you know, does this or state allows this. I kind of put out some feelers to some colleagues in the profession and there was mixed signals, um, kind of mixed feedback. Some school districts and states you know, don't allow it. Some have seen it before. And so the reason why you want the pay increase is obviously you're forgoing that. You want to get compensated for that. But health insurance is actually factored into your retirement salary when it comes to figuring your benefit. And so you do want to make sure that that is covered. But then on the, other, on the back end, if you have a, a better and cheaper, affo- more affordable health insurance plan available to you, maybe through a spouse, you may have on an aggregate level... You know, cheaper cost for insurance, but uh, a lower deductible. You know, between everyone in your family, maybe a lower out-of-pocket max and better coverage uh, through the health health plan. So, anyway, just something to consider. Again, it doesn't hurt to ask questions and, and find out if there's any opportunity there. Okay, someone had asked, should they be doing any extra savings when it comes to retirement? So you are, you know, default. Doing your standard X percent, depending on what state you're in, Missouri, it's 14 and a half percent. We can kind of net that out to, you know, take into consideration not paying into Social Security. But should you be doing additional savings on top of that? So, this again is a personal question. It comes back to your personal goals, your family goals, and kind of what you're trying to accomplish. And so, this kind of where it comes into projections and having some conversations about, you know, will this be enough um, and what do we want you know that that retirement that paid work optional time to look like if you do want to hedge and do additional savings outside of your traditional teacher's retirement you're more than welcome Um, if you say hey i'm not i don't necessarily trust completely my system or my state in the teacher's retirement so i do want to have something as kind of a, a a safety net there then you can definitely save outside of your teacher's retirement. So what this would look like is you can save in kind of tax-advantaged account, like a traditional IRA, Roth IRA, depending on you know if you want to pay taxes now or later. Again, this comes down to tax planning and what makes the most sense for you and your family. A lot of times through your school district, there's 403Bs and 457Bs that are offered. And these nothing necessarily wrong with these vehicles, but they're often administered by insurance companies and they're very costly because of how they're administered. Typically there are expensive funds, you know, within these accounts, just to be completely blunt insurance funds, funds created by insurance companies are typically very high cost. So you're not typically going to find any indexed funds, cheap index funds within these plans. They're typically the, the, um, proprietary funds that these insurance companies are running. So nothing necessarily wrong with those type of accounts. It's just super costly. So I would honestly consider looking outside of those types of accounts first into IRAs, or if you have a spouse, you know, increasing savings and in their maybe 401k if they have one available to them. So again, this is it comes down to your personal situation. Do a little research, see what you have available to you. But it could be an option if you ran if you ran out of other options. It could be something where you fall back on, say, hey, everything else is going to be saved in a 403b and and or a 457b. So again, the difference between the two accounts, 403b is a deferred annuity. So you save money into this account. It can be invested. You can always roll this account over into a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, depending on the tax type. But then it can also be annuitized similar to kind of what your teacher's retirement ends up being like come retirement, where it just kind of pays a stream of income. The 457 plan is deferred comp, and it's kind of similar. You you defer comp, you have, you know, pre-tax or after-tax component to it. But what's nice about this is that you can access it before 59 and a half, should you need it without triggering any penalties. Now, you'll still have to pay taxes on any, you know, gains within that account. You also may have to pay income taxes on any money that is withdrawn from the account that had been that a tax deduction had been taken previously whenever money was contributed to the account. But it could be a nice tool to use in your toolbox if you need a vehicle to to be able to, you know, shelter some income. Okay. Uh, And then one thing, one last thing about that 457 plan is that employer contributions do count towards the annual limit. So if you have a 457 plan or you have an employer that's contributing to that on your behalf, those contributions do count towards the annual limit. Okay, there was a question about some concern around not contributing to Social Security, being in one of those states that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Just some concern about not having that income stream in retirement since some states aren't requiring teachers to contribute to social security and should that be a cause for concern so i don't think it's a cause for concern because one it's pretty much being absorbed into your teacher's pension plan so um, either way you look at it you have government involvement that's in charge of paying out retirement benefits so whether you're looking at your state government or the federal government there's still government that's in control. And when it comes down to it, it's taxpayer funded. It's it's on the backs of taxpayers and the participants. So I wouldn't be concerned about that. I would uh, be concerned with the health of the state or the, the, the system. And I would be concerned with any additional saving that you were able to do on top of your mandatory uh, contribution to your Pension, your your retirement system. So, getting to getting to like that fifteen percent savings rate of your household income is a great place to get. Now, I talked a little bit earlier about kind of netting out your contribution to take into consideration of Social Security that is built in Missouri. You contribute fourteen and a half percent to your teacher's retirement. Well, you don't pay Social Security tax, so you can kind of net that out. And you're actually contributing closer to 8, 8% to your teacher's retirement. So knowing you have some room to save additional money to get up to that 15%. So that, that's just kind of a rule of thumb. And it's, it's a great kind of benchmark to hit for most people. So again, do your own due diligence, look at your own personal finances. But if you do have room to save additionally for retirement, then definitely take advantage of it. And just knowing that with Not being able to contribute to Social Security, it's kind of built into your own teacher's retirement saving. Okay. There was a question about how you should save for ongoing education. And so I'm assuming this is a teacher that is wanting to further their education. um, And what's the best route to go to doing that? So let's just say you're a teacher and you want to go back and do your master's. How is the best way to save for this? And so if that's the case, um, I would definitely probably consider looking at a 529 plan. And you need to come back and see what your state offers. Some states allow you to have a state deduction for contributions to a 529 plan. Other states do not. And so this is kind of a key component of how you go about saving. So if your state offers a state tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan, then it makes a lot of sense to contribute money to this, even if you're going to need it in the same year. So if you're trying to cash flow your education, kind of pay it from your income, you know, it it makes a lot of sense to go ahead and just contribute to your 529, get the deduction, and then just funnel it back to paying your expenses. Now, not every state gives a tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan. So you have to be kind of mindful of that because it doesn't make a lot of sense if not, if you're going to use it immediately. But again, 529 accounts, good, good accounts to save, um, get the deduction or allow your money to grow tax free. And as long as you used it for a qualifying educational expense, then you can withdraw it tax-free as well. So it could be a great tool for that. And then one side note is too, if your state, some states give a tax deduction no matter which plan, which 529 plan you use. So every state offers their own 529 plan. Some states offer a deduction regardless of what 529 plan you use. So for example, I actually use, um, I don't use Missouri's, I use Utah's because they offer a great investment mix. It's cheap. It's one of the best that I found kind of on the market. There's a lot of features and they give you a lot of control over how to you know, manage, manage those 529 accounts. So that could be an option too, if you're in a state that gives a, a state tax deduction regardless of where you save, then it makes sense to kind of check out all the different states 529 plans to make sure you're getting the best one. But within that 529 account, you actually do choose the investment mix. Okay. So that's that's what I would recommend there. If you are wanting to save for your kids' education, kind of the same thing, 529 accounts make a lot of sense because of the potential in state ta- tax deduction, but then the ability for the funds to grow tax-free and be withdrawn tax-free if used for a qualifying educational expense. So, I am a, I am a little 50-50 here. Um, I'm a little skeptical on higher education long-term and what that's going to look like. Obviously we have a huge crisis right now with student loan debt and everyone going to get these college degrees and they're just not worth the cost that we're paying for them. So uh, you could call it a bubble. That's, that's kind of what we're seeing. So what's going to happen here is there going to be reform, you know, now you can learn just about anything on the internet, like all the information we ever could need and want is available to us. And so it's not necessarily the education Um, And the information that's the problem, it's do we need degrees to pretty much certify that we've gone through a process? I know there's a lot of professions and careers that are no longer requiring a college degree. It's more so, what do you know? Let me see how you apply it. And that experience is enough. Like I know the computer science industry, I know like software uh, engineering, and that whole, you know, industry is... more and more about what do you know and what can you do as opposed to show me your college degree. So anyway, long story short, I'm I'm a little hesitant to say, hey, we should do all of our saving within a five to nine plan, you know, for the future because who knows? Who knows what's what that's gonna look like. Who knows if the government is going to reform some of these accounts to allow them, to allow us the flexibility to take these funds out without being penalized in the future. So it'd be a little different. If there was some um, provisions now where it was like, hey, any unused 529 plans could be rolled into an IRA uh, or a Roth IRA, that'd be a little different. I'd be a little more gun ho of like, okay, yeah, we can definitely fund these 529 plans if we are really, if we really want to help, kind of you know, fund an education and and having kind of a safety net. But right now, there's just too many unknowns. So, yes, have a 529 plan. You can save in there. Feel free to save. Feel free to put family and friends m- monetary gifts in those accounts for your kids but I just wouldn't go overboard with trying to fully fund that at this moment. That's just a personal opinion. That's just my thoughts. And I've had a lot of great conversations with clients and and other people. But when it comes down to it, it's about what you want to do and your goals and kind of hedging on what the future is going to look like. So a couple of uh, just other random notes to consider. Always Be in the know of when your open enrollment is. Typically, it's going to be a couple months before your new contract year. So don't let this sneak up on you. It's typically the same every year, but be invested in this process. Know what your benefits are, the extent of them, and have a plan as you head into open enrollment to make sure you're optimizing the benefits that you're selecting. Also, be sure to keep all your beneficiaries updated on all your benefits and all your retirement accounts and just accounts in general. This is not just isolated to teachers, but in general best practices to keep your beneficiaries updated. So obviously the big one is making sure your teacher's retirement has the correct beneficiaries listed on it. So you don't have to go through probate. So probate isn't 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 a complication that should happen um, if you have your beneficiaries properly listed. And then oftentimes the school district provides a standard group life insurance policy that is typically one times base salary, or maybe it's different um, in your area. But again, this needs a beneficiary on it. So should you you die while teaching, they need to know who the money goes to. And so if you don't have a beneficiary on file, it makes it really hairy to make sure that money gets to where it needs to go. So again, it kind of goes through probate and the judge decides kind of who gets it. So anyway, make sure you're, you know, being diligent about electing these benefits being aware of open enrollment and, you know, setting the proper beneficiaries for all your accounts. One last thing I wanted to hit on is just having a plan for your summers. No matter what you want your summers to look like, just have a plan. I know you guys just work so hard in such a a small condensed period of time. I think I mentioned earlier, you guys do a year's worth of work in nine months and some of you go on to do summer school and after school activities and extracurriculars and all these things. And so, my my point here is have a plan for your summers if it's really going to be a time of just rejuvenation and rest and you need that like great you know make that a plan and plan on sticking to your guns there if if you are in the camp of you see summer as an opportunity you know you don't need a lot of that downtime you know to rejuvenate you kind of are more of a busybody and kind of go 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 or you have these things you want to do that have a plan for that as well. I know a lot of teachers and I'm not encouraging this one way or the other, but I know a lot of teachers have a second job in the summer and maybe it's just a time for them to stay busy. Maybe it's a time for them to make more progress on their financial goals. Yeah. One way or the other, just have you yeah, have a plan with what that looks like, but it could be a, a time for a great opportunity either way, whichever way you choose an opportunity to spend, you know, time in, in relationships and connecting and doing the things that you can't during the school year but it also can be a time where you have a an extra opportunity you know what does it look like to make some serious headway on financial goals whatever that looks like i don't know what this means to you obviously your your personal finances are really personal and unique and intricate and so yeah either way either way just have a plan for your summers be intentional about it just because your time's valuable it's kind of one of those resources we can't get back but we have to steward it regardless and we have to do it well. So, whatever you plan it to be, just have a plan. And that is most of what I wanted to cover. I hope it was valuable. Let me know if you guys have any questions or thoughts or concerns or need clarification about anything I talked about. The full show notes, you can click on the show notes in in this episode and the full show notes will be on the website and so you can kind of bounce over to there to see a lot of the resources and information that I referenced. And yeah, if you're listening to this first time, I'd love to have you subscribe to the show and Yeah. Have you as a listener and feel free to share this with anyone you think it might be valuable, friends, colleagues, family, any, anybody. I'm still trying to, you know, spread awareness around this podcast and just providing as much value as I can to people that can benefit from it. So, so until next time, the best is yet to come. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only because it is general in nature. It does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a financial decision. This podcast is not engaged in legal, financial, or other professional services.